Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with my longtime friend, Ryan Earp. He's a recovering alcoholic and addict and continues to tell his story of recovery. It's a story that starts out in high school and ends in jail and rehab. It's about how substance abuse eventually takes you to a dark place that you never thought it could get to. He says that it was family and friends that eventually helped him make the decision to get sober. They never lost faith in who he could become once he left the alcohol and the drugs. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed to the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Ryan Earp. After high school, Ryan left home to pursue his dream of becoming an actor, but bad decisions and addiction got in the way. Because of a DUI, he moved back home to Alaska and eventually found himself in an even worse spot, where he had to have some type of mind-altering substance in his system just to get out of bed in the morning. It was a full-blown addiction that ended in a drug bust in Ketchikan, where he was charged with 12 felonies and was looking at 8 to 10 years. So here he is. Ryan Earp. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. Could you maybe paint me a picture of what your day was like today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. Um, I woke up probably around, I mean, I, I hate saying I woke up to, to tell people how I started my day, but that is what <laughs> happened. Um, woke up around, I don't know, about seven o'clock, went to the gym, uh, did some cardio today, which I can't stand, uh, but I did it. Came home, had some breakfast, took a shower, and then uh, went out to work for about, I don't know, about six hours. Um, <clears throat> drove around and tried to sell some people some, some life insurance policies. Cause that's my new, my new jam. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, man, then came home to my lovely wife and, and, uh, and here we are sitting in my closet. Oh, you're in your closet. I'm yeah. Oh yeah. Gotta have the quietest room in the house. Right. <laughs> Did I tell you to sit in your closet? Cause that's the go-to. Oh no. This is just like, why well, 
I was thinking about it the past couple of days because we've been talking about this for a while. And I walked in the closet last night. I was saying something to Jema. And I walked into the closet as I was talking and she was in the bathroom and she's like, what? I can't hear you. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. It's, that's the perfect room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it just worked out great. If you were thinking about your life in the future, but this is, you know, Ryan 10 years ago, would you think that you'd be doing what you did today? No, I, I actually, that's funny, man. Cause I, I think about that a lot. Um, my life has taken such a drastic turn from the path that I was on. Um, and it's led me to just, I mean, such a, such a really, I mean, for, for lack of a better way to say it, like peaceful existence, you know, um, mm -hmm. I never, if you would have told me 10 years ago that I would be living in a house in Phoenix, Arizona with my new wife um, and our two lovely kitties. Um, I probably would have told you to go fuck yourself. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I, I wouldn't have believed it. You know, there's no way. Do you think that you couldn't believe it because maybe you thought you didn't deserve it or did you not want it back then? No, I think I think you nailed it on the head with the first part there with the with the former of the two. I think uh, I think I felt I didn't deserve it. You know, I wasn't doing anything in my life um, with integrity. Um, I didn't have a set of like principles or morals or values that I held true to my heart. And and uh, I, I just didn't I didn't really feel like I deserved a lot at all. Um, yeah, it would definitely be more more towards that route. I, I I also never would have, you know, believed it or or even been able to dream it because um, I didn't know that this was possible for somebody in my situation. Um, I was hopeless, you know, in my in my eyes, I had I had become entirely hopeless. You know, I kind of want to get back to that feeling of hopelessness, but before we get there i wanted to i wanted to explain why i wanted to talk to you today and it's because recently i re-released the three-part podcast series you did with our friend and alaska journalist Ammon swenson called outrun your demons and after i re-released that i came to this realization that i couldn't leave it where it left off because there's more to your story of addiction and recovery and I know that after you got through all that struggle and all that ugliness, there's happiness, the happiness that you're talking about right now. But that's for later. We'll get to the happiness later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put the happiness on hold. So for those who might not have listened to the series, and Ryan, feel free to add more to this if, if I don't uh, give an accurate synopsis, but it tells your story of adolescent post high school adventure and definitely some irresponsibility is involved. There's a couple incidents of drinking and driving and one where you crash your car and another where you actually get a DUI. And instead of getting to live in LA and pursue your dream of becoming an actor, you end up moving back home to Alaska where you work in asbestos abatement and that's where those episodes end. Yeah, absolutely, man. They just, they, they kind of end right there. I mean, that was, it was quite the escapade really, but, um, 
and I, and I, you know, I've, I've listened to those, to those quite a few times and, uh, and uh, man, it had been probably, probably five, six years since I listened to it, I guess probably really when it came out and I listened to it recently and, uh, mm-hmm. and listening to that first episode, it gave me like <laughs> full body chills because I mean, in those first parts, it's, it's approached with such levity and almost like, Oh, this is kind of like a funny story. Um, but when I, when I look back on that period of my life, man, that was just, that was just one little section. That was just one little piece of the bottom, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And they always say your bottom is where you stop digging. And I definitely did not stop digging after that story. So it's, uh, it's pretty wild to listen to for sure. Do you, think any differently about it now than maybe you thought of it back then when you first listened to it? Absolutely. There was, there was a couple things that I, that I said in that, um, in those episodes that, um, that I just have a whole different outlook on that situation, uh, in general. I mean, you can you can kind of hear it in my voice there on episode three when when we're kind of wrapping it all up and I'm and I'm going home just totally defeated adding to my list of failures but I look at that list of failures now as the thing that made me who I am today you know that got me to be sitting in my closet on the floor having this conversation with you <laughs> um, and and I don't regret the past and I don't wish to shut the door on the past I it, it made me who I am it was because of all those things that I am who I am today. So that new outlook is looking at those situations where past Ryan thought were failures, but you're looking at them in a new light, something positive totally that you learn from. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, life is, is a, is a series of lessons. Um, and you can either choose to keep making the same mistakes or you can, you know, that's, it's insanity, right? Thinking that you can do the same thing over and over and over again and expect different results. Um, but when you, when you look back on a situation like this and, and you start to make those changes, um, that's getting out of insanity and getting into a solution for your problems in life um, instead of living things on repeat. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I know about you is that when you're sober and you're the best version of yourself, you're honest and you have this great ability for self-analysis. But even when, you know, you were in it, you know, you were you were drinking or you were taking pills or doing drugs, you you always had that glimpse of self-analysis. When you look back on those moments, do you think that they were fake or do you think that you had like moments of clarity? Yep. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's, it, they're just, uh, miniature moments of clarity, man. Uh, that's, that's really all they are. It's like, even when you're in the middle of it, when shit is just absolutely terrible, you can, you'll have these little glimpses of like, holy cow, I'm not doing very good right now. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, this is what's wrong with me. This is what's wrong with me. You can, you can see those things. Um, but they're very fleeting. They're very, very fleeting. And to, to look back on those things now and to know that I could still see that the entire time, um, it makes you wonder what 
somebody with an you know alcoholic addict mind like what do they have to go through what things do they have to go through that finally makes them decide i don't want to do this anymore mm-hmm. and it's completely different for everybody you know um as, as soon as you have enough pitiful pitiful incomprehensible demoralization on your whatever your standards of that are you'll change yeah and mine was you know a little further down the road after episode three of outrun your demons so earlier you said that when you were listening to that series again it gave you chills do you remember what parts gave you chills yeah so the first thing that really stuck out in my head is when i'm talking about the car accident that i got into before i went back and picked up uh mike in in alaska and tried the whole trip all over again uh i keep talking about how the car went off the road and the car did this and and it's there's just zero responsibility for anything that happened um you know what i do say like well that was a dickhead move bailing on the guy's bar tab and stuff and it was it totally was um but I don't claim responsibility in those episodes for really doing the things that I did. You know, it was more of a, as this happened to me, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, it's like a victim role. And, uh, and I try to live my life not by the victim role anymore. Cause it's just, it's pitiful. You know, um, I feel like there's bigger forces in play and, um, you know, everything that happened happened for a reason, but I, but I definitely did not claim any responsibility. So that gave me, that's kind of one of the things that was like, oh man, like I was a very sick person back then. Very sick. There's this point in that series that stuck out to me and also gave me chills. There was a few other moments, but this one, uh, and I think it's the way you say it too, um, but it's when you say, when you're reflecting on your situation and you say, you know, this is what people tell you not to do. You know, after you're kind of surveying everything that's happened and you're like, shit, this is what people have warned me not to do. And here I am doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That one, that one hit pretty close to home too. Um, It's like you, you, you draw these lines in the sand, right? And you always tell yourself, I'm not going to go over that line. I'm not going to do this. If I do that thing, whatever that thing is, then I'll be a, you know, a version of myself that I don't approve of, or I'll be, you know, a a different person. Um, But with an alcoholic addict mind, uh, those lines in the sand just kind of get, get farther and farther and farther behind you because you keep continuing to cross those lines all the time and you, and you justify it to yourself, you know? So this is what people told you not to do, but you did it anyway. Um, and that just continued to happen and continued to happen for me. So yeah, that's, that was a, that was a weird one to hear too. Mm-hmm. When you did listen to these recently, did you listen to them as someone listening to another person or could you still identify and recognize that person? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, uh, there were parts when I'm, when I'm listening to it where I was, uh, you know, I was actually laughing, you know, out loud at some of the things that like Mike and I were saying. Um, mm-hmm. then there was parts of me that when I was speaking, it was like, I was almost saying it all over again. Um, 
could totally relate to some of the feelings that I felt at the time. You know, those feelings haven't necessarily haven't necessarily gone away. You know, I'm a firm believer that our body keeps the score out of all these things. And um, yeah, it was it was kind of back and forth. You know, okay, this is this is fun and fun to listen to. Almost like it, just, you know, I just found this podcast and this is cool to listen. To, like, what a crazy story. Um, and then other times it was, you know, I, there was no way I could separate myself from it because there, there is, you know, points in that, in that series that there's some, some serious heartfelt emotion and, and you can hear it and, uh, definitely made it hard to listen to at times. What do you think was one of the hardest parts to listen to? I think probably the, the recap, you know, on, on the third episode where I kind of talk about just adding this to a, another list of failures because that emotion when I was driving back home uh, from LA to Alaska mm -hmm. was so powerful, so powerful. I mean, I talk about having to pull over to the side of the road and just cry and I like, wow, I can actually remember doing that, you know, pulling over to the side of the road and just bawling my eyes out because here is another thing. Here's one more thing that I failed at. Um, you know, countless, countless failed relationships, dropped out of college. My dad actually, and I don't ever even mention this in the first one, but my dad actually fired me from the family business. Um, you know, that was just add that to the, to the list of failures, which I, for whatever reason, focused on in my life at that point. Um, and that was hard. It was really hard to listen to how down and out I was. That's, that's one of the parts that hit me when you had to pull over because you were crying so hard. Um, it was unexpected. You know, I was listening to it because uh, actually at your wedding recently, <laughs> um, I woke up in the middle of the night and for some reason I was like, you know what? I should repost that Outrun Your Demon series, you know, now that more people listen to the podcast and put it on like the actual crude channel. And I don't know what woke me up, but it was the first thing I thought of. And yeah, dude, that part, that part. And then when you're driving into LA and you put on the chronic 2001, I was just like, I mean, cause me and you were, were very similar people in that way. And I could see myself in those moments, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. It was unexpected how hard it hit me. Yeah, it was, uh, it was much it was much heavier than i remember it being mm -hmm. you know i ammon and i sat in the back of, of the old volkswagen and and recorded that and you know he says after some male bonding like i think we went out and shot guns and like hung out and just you know pulled over to the side and fired up the generator and got everything you know settled and and sat there and just basically had you know a conversation and and uh i don't remember it being so heavy Mm -hmm. during that time um and yeah dude listening to the chronic 2001 pulling up into la was oh my gosh i still remember that feeling seeing the smog just hanging over la and like it was in the early morning hours so the sun was coming up and yeah it was it felt like it felt like i had arrived you know not just physically but like spiritually and emotionally and, and all of the ways that you can possibly arrive. Like I had made it. And then to follow that up very shortly after with another 
you know, big hit to the old ego and, and fail, you know, it was, it was, it was tough. Do you think that maybe that feeling of failure led to, you know, your alcoholism? Or do you think that the alcoholism was always there? Or did that feeling of failure even exacerbate the alcoholism? Yeah, I think, I think I was born an alcoholic. I will always be an alcoholic. There's no cure for alcoholism. Um, I get a daily reprieve um, based on, you know, the maintenance of my spiritual condition. Um, and when you are not spiritual or connected to some sort of power greater than yourself and you're just constantly drinking to drown out any sort of emotion or um, any sort of feeling you know is it good feelings bad feelings it, you know it, it's any any feeling that you feel is too much almost mm -hmm. um, there's there's no emotional sobriety either I mean it's just it, it's either let's drink because the day was awesome. Let's drink because the day was shitty or let's drink because the day ends in Y, you know, um, just any, any reason. So I think, yeah, upon returning home, um, and it really took off after that. Um, those, those feelings of failure in my opinion at the time needed to be covered up by something. How do I do it? I do it with alcohol and drugs. Okay. So that's, where that portion of your story ends, where you're in LA, you get a DUI and you end up moving back to Alaska. Where does your story pick up from there? Oh man. Yeah. So I quit drinking shortly after that. I got in, I got into another, another heavy, terrible relationship and, and I, and I got a job, um, doing, asbestos abatement, which was really cool. It was really cool. I felt uh, accomplished. You know, I had to take a, a 40 hour, which is, you know, whatever. I took a 40 hour class and I passed with like a 98% on my, on my test. And, um, it was a cool job, man. I got to travel all over the state, um, see, see portions of Alaska that people don't see, you know, uh, you can go your entire life living in Alaska and not see some of the places that I went to. And it was just, Oh my God, it was so much fun. Um, so shortly after I got the job, I got a call from my dad when I was out in, I was out in, um, I guess it would be up, up by Fairbanks, uh, working on a military base up there. And he called me and said, Hey man, you're about to lose your job. I was like, what, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? He said, you're drinking too much. I need you to stop drinking if you want to keep that job. So that didn't really do it, you know, uh, frothy emotional appeal doesn't really do it for somebody like me. I'm like, oh yeah, man, that's terrible. I probably should quit drinking, but I'll just be better about it. Okay. You know, is, where, is where my mind goes. So, um, shortly after that, I, I did quit drinking and then I just spiraled, um, into a, into a series of drug after drug after drug. And I would make this drug my new, my new alcohol. And then when that one kind of wore off, I'd make this drug my new alcohol. And then it was, you know, a combination of drugs. And then it just got worse and worse and worse. Um, you know, long distance relationships were super hard. Uh, there was, there was really nothing in my life at that point that felt like it was worth putting in any work for, 
you know, I, I felt um, alone. And, and, and that's so crazy to say, because I know like we've always had a big group of friends and, and we've always had a lot of fun together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could be in a room with, with all of you guys and feel completely alone. Um, and that was, a, that was a weird place to be, man. Uh, so the days got darker and darker and not just because it was winter time in Alaska, but because it was like the emotions were, were too much to handle. So I just pushed all of it down with one substance or another. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I thought of earlier when you were talking about your understanding and your perception of that outrun your demons series now versus you know when we were younger you know when it came out in 2015 2016 and we were just very different people and earlier you said that it's a lot darker than you remember and after i listened to it i pretty much had that same exact thought i'm like oh my gosh like this is you know i had i had a number of thoughts one was this is a lot darker than i thought another one was how happy and proud I am that it was preserved for posterity, you know, and, and to have a snapshot of, of your life uh, in that moment. And then even Ammon's reporting in that moment, and then being able to put that out into the world in that moment. But also the third thing that I thought of was um, remembering myself in that moment and remembering like us and, you know, wanting to have this rock star kind of lifestyle or even having this rock star mentality and thinking, wow, wow, this is a crazy story. This is, this will be fun to put, you know, our escapades or one of our escapades out there. Yeah. The, the rock star mentality, dude, that's a, that's funny that you say that. Cause I, I mean, obviously like I wanted to move to LA to become an actor. Like that was the only thing that I ever wanted to do, you know? And I, I think I look back on that now and it's because I wanted to live that rock star lifestyle. I wanted to be able to, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, dude. Like that's the life that I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all starts out fun. I mean, it all starts out fun. You, you know, you, you do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you have a good time. Um, and then it turns into something you never thought it would be. Um, it turns into this, to this incredibly dark, like incredibly dark life that you live. That's like, Oh my God, I can't believe I lived every single day of my life like that. Mm-hmm. I, I would say from the time I was 17 to the time I was 27, I did some substance every day, every single day. Um, and it, and it, it stopped being fun probably about the time I was like 23, you know, at this point I was just doing it because I had to. You're stuck in the routine. Yeah. You're stuck, dude. You're just so stuck and you don't, you don't necessarily even know that there is a way out, that there's a way to get out of this. Um, yeah, that rock star mentality. That's so funny. Cause I would literally feel like a rock star when I was doing drugs, <laughs> like, blowing down lines just feeling like oh my god i'm so cool like there is nothing cool about doing lines alone by yourself in your bedroom (laughs) yeah there's nothing cool about that um but yeah it just takes you to this place that you never thought it would get to 
So you mentioned lines. I would assume that's lines of cocaine, but just to have a frame of reference here, what drugs are we talking about? What drugs were you taking? Oh, man. Uh, so, I did, yeah, obviously I did a whole lot of cocaine. I had a really, really quite a long stint with bath salts. Um, I did a lot of bath salts for about a year. Um, and that one, that was a weird one because the very first time I did bath salts, I was like, oh, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. I knew it because I was like, oh, you can just go down to the head shop and pick this up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, bath salts, cocaine, um, lots of Adderall and Xanax and, and um then it got, it just, it just got heavier and heavier from there. So I started getting into meth. Uh, I started doing quite a bit of meth, mainly when I was out working. I actually, like, for some reason, took a whole bunch of pride in the fact that I never did meth in Anchorage. <laughs> like, I was, like, proud of that fact. Uh, but, I, yeah, I started to do a lot of meth when I was out at work. And, and uh, I'm a firm believer that if you do enough meth, you're eventually going to do heroin. And if you do enough heroin, you're eventually going to do meth. And and sure enough, uh, I started doing heroin. So, um, yeah, dude, I mean, it, like I said, those lines in the sand, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm never going to touch that shit. I'm never going to do this. And then somebody, I think it was the very first time somebody ever offered me meth. I said, yeah, okay. You know, there was like zero hesitation. Yeah. Zero hesitation. Um, and I'm a, I, I'm a firm believer that there's, that there's this progression um, with alcoholics and drug addicts that it gets worse, never better unless you get sober. So. And were you smoking meth, smoking heroin or? Yeah. 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 I never, I, I, I never stuck a needle in my arm. Um, I had been presented with that opportunity on a couple different occasions, but, but really, I mean, in all honesty, when I had like there was a buddy of mine, I, I call him a buddy. He was just a, a guy that I worked with was sitting in my car and, and he had a syringe of heroin. And I was like, Oh my God, dude, no, I probably shouldn't do that. I'm, I think I will probably like it too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, I'm really, really, really grateful that, um, you know, something intervened at that, at that point in time and, and said, uh, Nope, <laughs> don't do that. Um, but yeah, smoking a lot of meth and smoking a lot of heroin and just, uh, yeah, man, turned me into somebody I, I never expected to be. What do you think stopped you from shooting up? So I'm, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a a religious person. Uh, but, uh, but I, I believe in a, in a power greater than myself. I believe in a higher power. and, And I think that I choose, I choose to call my higher power God, um, because it's, it's just so much easier for me to, to call it God. And, um, I think it was God, dude. I really do. Um, I used to, I used to have this whole idea that, uh, whenever anything bad happened in my life, I would say, God, why'd you do this to me? But whenever anything good happened, I would say, oh man, I got lucky. You know, like, and now since getting sober, uh, it's like, that was just in, in my opinion, that was God intervening in my life in, in different ways. And, uh, you know, I'm super, super grateful that, that I didn't stick that needle in my arm. I wonder if those things that you said, you know, when something bad happened in your life and you said, you know, God, why is this happening? Or why did God do this to me? But then when something good happened, it's luck, right? To me, that, that gets back to this unworthiness that you felt. Totally. I haven't even ever pieced that together before, but yeah, 
Yeah, because why would why would God be on my side, right? What what have I done that would that would make God be on my side? Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't ever ever really put that together. That's cool. You know, I've never I've never worked asbestos abatement before, but from what I've heard from you, from a few of our other friends, uh, is that it's it's tough work. How are you able to juggle the pills, the drinking, and that job? Yeah, that's a, uh, it was a honed skill. No, I'm just, um, but yeah, it was, um, I think, so yes, it's a very hard job. It's physically demanding. I mean, not only are you swinging a sledgehammer, um, for, you know, 10 hours a day and, and, uh, you know, using power tools and everything, you're in a full containment, but you're also in a full hazmat suit. Um, with full face respirators and gloves and boots and everything's duct taped and it's just the sweatiest, hottest job ever. Um, so I used drugs to get me through every day. You know, you smoke a little bit of meth, you can swing a sledgehammer for fucking hours, dude. (laughs) Um, and then, and then, you know, it was like, oh, it's lunch break time. So I'd take a quick Xanax just so I could put some food in my body. And I say food, it was probably more like a protein drink, like a muscle milk that I got from the gas station. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I ate lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then smoke more meth before you go back to work. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of just, in my opinion, like they went, they went pretty well together. Um, you know, sometimes you're in a room working by yourself, tearing down walls, doing whatever you can. You're away from other people, so you can just do whatever you want, you know, and getting high was a huge part of that. Um, it just kind of, you just learn to, uh, you just learn to do it, man. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I'm a firm believer that most alcoholics and, and drug addicts are very, very resourceful and, uh, and they'll make it work, dude. You know, something that I think is is a big piece of your story and maybe even a big piece of your feeling of self-worth or even self-worthlessness is the fact that you were so popular in high school. High school was, um, I bet you look back on high school in a similar way that I look back on high school and I think, wow, that was fun. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I kind of... Um, What's a good way to put it? It's like you figured it out, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, however many years later, not that many, you're, you know, you're 20, 22, 23. So however many years out of high school and here you are feeling like a failure. Yeah. Yeah. That was a huge thing, dude. I, I remember actually, I remember my first year at college, I called home. I, I think it was talking to my mom And uh, I remember telling her, like, nobody knows who I am here. You know, like, nobody knows me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, like, it was heartbreaking, dude. It was, like, I had been, you know, a a popular guy and I had lots of friends. And it was, you know, high school was awesome, dude. It was a really great time. Um, And that's kind of really where it all started for me was in college. Um, started, you know, doing some experimental usage. And there was this guy down the, down the hall who could get anything you wanted. So I quickly became pretty good friends with that guy. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, pretty much, it pretty much started there um, because high school had been, I mean, such an amazing experience. I mean, it was, I was so involved and, you know, it was just, it was, it was a blast. 
and then to to go to a life where nobody knows you where you feel um invisible mm-hmm. i felt invisible um that was hard and then you know just to continue to to keep cruising downhill um for the years after that yeah it was tough it was really tough and you didn't really drink in high school no i didn't i didn't start i didn't my sister and i <laughs> god bless her uh, my sister and i went to our first party when we were 16 years old um and we drank for the first time and it was like a plan we had like planned it we're like we're gonna go to this party and we're gonna drink um my parents were out of town i think and and uh, yeah dude it was i was 16 years old before before i you know first like went i had had a beer with my dad or something like that you know but not like you know it wasn't anything crazy um and we decided we're going to this party and we're getting drunk and uh, and we did and it was great we had so much fun together um it was cool to share that experience with your you know with your twin sister it was like oh we're gonna do this together Mm -hmm. we took a lot of pride in being you know good kids something that our mutual friend Clayton and I have jokingly said in the past, and I want to bring it up to you to see if it's true because I I hope it's not true, but we would always joke that we corrupted you two, or we corrupted you at least, <laughs> you know, because we drank. Yeah, yeah. No, I I am not a believer in that at all. I think it's 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 just a matter of time before somebody who's 16 or 17 starts to get the itch and wonder, Oh, what, what are all these, like, you know, you come back to school on a Monday morning and people are talking about how awesome the party was on the weekend. And like, you want a part of that, you know, there's nothing that I don't believe there's anything that anybody can do. I mean, you, you're the master of your own domain, you know, sure. You know, you hear people talking about it and stuff, but in the end, it's all you, it's, it's, you know, it's a personal decision. Um, so no, I'm I know, and I know that running that running joke. I mean, even my dad jokes about how Clayton corrupted me. Um, <laughs> but it's not nobody actually believes it. You know, nobody really. I don't think anybody really believes it anyway. I hope they don't, because that's not that's not that's not at all what happened. Because before Clayton was hanging out with um, me and our other friend Gus, Clayton was the same way. And then he hung out with us and, you know, he's drinking. <laughs> so, uh, so, so what you're saying is it all comes back to you. I so, hope man. not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think that's just another, you know, that's just another example of like, you know, I, sure, peer pressure, totally a thing. But I don't think anybody, like, it's not like you were like, come on, Clayton, drink that beer. Um, it was like you know, you see other people having fun and doing stuff that you haven't tried before. And it gets, it gets intriguing, Mm -hmm. you know, you're intrigued. So yeah, I don't think, I mean, I guess it could all be your fault. (laughs) I don't don't think we'll go there. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's just Gus's fault. We'll just blame Gus. (laughs) So something your mom told me at your wedding recently was that so many times when you couldn't meet up with them or make it to dinner with your family, you told them that you had to help me out with crude stuff, whether it was a party or taking photos. How often was that actually the case? And were there any excuses that you used other than that? Um, that was typically the standard excuse that I used because my parents love 
they love you and Carrie like like so much. Um, so I thought if you know if I told her that I was hanging out with Cody and Carrie, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and Clayton and and the people that my parents like love and respect, that they wouldn't think twice. You know, um, they wouldn't even they wouldn't even question it. Um, but that again is just you know stupid alcoholic thinking that like your parents don't see that something's going on when you're a terrible drug addict. Um, you think it's you think you're just you're so good at doing what you're doing, but you're just not. Um, I would say it was probably true. I don't know, maybe twenty five percent of the time there was a there was a there was a a decent time there where we were hanging out like you know quite a bit. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were spending a lot of time together, um, but. Yeah, I mean, maybe 25% of the time. Do you remember what was going through your mind when you were doing all this? Oh, man. Where would you even start answering that question? Yeah. Um, so it, it, it came in, in different, uh, you know, different little snippets, I guess. Um, first, when I started doing it, what was going through my mind is like, wow, this is fun. This is really, you know, this is something different. Also mixed with, um, you know, a little bit of shame and a little bit of regret and like, why am I doing this? This is kind of crazy. Um, and then as time goes on and it starts to become this, you know, your new normal, um, what you're thinking is, where am I going to get more? How am I going to get more? What, how many hours am I going to have to sit in a parking lot today waiting for somebody to show up on drug dealer time? Mm-hmm. Um it just turns into this, into this total obsession. Um, and not just, you know, not just physically, but mentally as well. It's like, as soon as I woke up in the morning, my thoughts went to, do I have anything? If I don't, where am I going to get it? How many phone calls am I going to have to make? It's just, it's a, it's an absolute obsession. So yeah, I mean, again, with that progression thing, I mean, this is fun. This is a good time. I might have a little shame around it. Um, then the more you do it, the more it becomes normal. So that shame kind of goes away. Plus you're using a bunch of drugs and so you can't really feel anything anyway. Um, so shame's not even really a part of your vocabulary at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, it turns, turns very quickly into this just total, um, total obsession. Do you remember when you first realized that this part of your life was coming to an end? Man, yeah. So this is crazy, dude. And I thought about this. Um, actually, I was thinking about this just recently. So there was a time I woke up. Me and Clayton were living together, um, and I woke up in our apartment, and I told myself I had a prescription for Xanax and Adderall. And for whatever reason, I I would take each of very very you know counterproductive to take a Xanax and an Adderall at the same time. But I would, that was like my, my little morning cocktail that I would take every day just to make myself get out of bed. Um, and I, I remember walking into the bathroom and looking at myself in the mirror and just for, for frame of reference, I'm like six foot one. Uh, I, I currently weigh like 170, 175 pounds at the time I was a hundred and like 40 pounds. Um, so I was skin and bones um, I had dark circles under my eyes. Um, I remember looking at myself in the mirror with my with my pills in my hand, and I thought to myself, "Not today. You're not gonna do this today." So I put them back, and I went out to the couch. And I think I probably smoked a joint or something. Um, and uh, within 30 minutes, 
I was back in the bathroom taking those pills. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and shaking my head and then walking out of the bathroom. And it was at that point that I had resigned completely that I was going to be a drug addict or, you know, an alcoholic drug addict for the rest of my life. That's just how I was going to be. Um, and, and at that point, I mean, when there's that strange mental click where all of a sudden you've just fully accepted that fact, it's like no, no holds barred at that point. You know, I was, I was ready to do anything and everything, um, to get, to get what I needed, to get what I needed to just even be well, you know, man, I, I, that, that's, that's gotta be such a surreal experience when, you know, you look at yourself you choose the bottle and you resign yourself to being this person and you just, you know, drop straight into that entire life. Was there a moment when you were, you were in it maybe a month later, two months later, a year later, and maybe you thought of revisiting that thought of like, maybe not being that person. Man, I would say, so, I mean, it was quickly after that, that I remember getting like fentanyl and stuff for the first time and and, like smoking fentanyl and and doing just, I mean, just going way, way harder than I had ever gone before. Mm -hmm. Um, there was actually a time I was down in Ketchikan. This was like right, right before everything really kind of came to a, to an abrupt halt. Um, I was sitting in a hotel room. I was down there for work. I was sitting in a hotel room smoking meth. And, uh, and it wasn't working anymore. I like was not getting that very familiar euphoric feeling of smoking meth. Um, and it, and it scared the fucking shit out of me. Um, because the thing that I had used for so long was no longer working. And it was like, oh no. It scared you that you weren't getting high anymore. Yeah. Yeah it scared the shit out of me because it was like, what, what changes? And I think I actually reached out to you that night. Um, and I remember, I remember saying like something along the lines of like, I'm not okay. And I, and I feel like, you know, this, this, that, or the other thing. I don't know if you remember that or not. Um, but I had texted you shortly before, um, everything came screeching to a halt. Do you remember what happened after that? Oh, absolutely. This was, that was the day that everything in my life changed. It was probably 15 minutes after I was sitting on the couch there that I, that I, uh, I looked over towards the door, um, and underneath the door came a fiber optic camera and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, am I just like, am I tweaking right now? Or is that real? You know? So I go, I like walk very slowly over to the door and I look out the peephole and there's five cops standing outside the door. And so I quickly ran over to my buddy who was uh, trying to make his own meth pipe in the bathroom. We were, there was three of us that were all just kind of hanging out there. One of them had actually gone out to um, distribute some narcotics to some other person. And um, we, uh, I told him, hey man, there's, you know, there's five cops at the door. And he laughed. He laughed and I was like, you're not taking this seriously, dude. There are five cops on the door. So we quickly like ran around and hid everything that we had in the apartment, in the, in the little, um, 
hotel room we were staying in, like they weren't coming in to search absolutely every piece of that hotel room. Um, and then, you know, right, right as soon as uh, we kind of put the last little bit of a way that the door came flying open, guns drawn, you know, KPD, Ketchikan Police Department, get on the ground. And, and uh, yep, that was, that was it, dude. We, we sat there on the couch and watched them go through absolutely every inch of that room and find everything we had. Um, and I guess a little bit of a backstory to that is I had been, I, I moved a bunch of, a bunch of stuff from, from, uh, from Ketchikan down to, or from Anchorage down to Juneau and, um, you know, packed it up all nice and neat in my carry on and, and, and took it down and, um, just kind of, it was like, I wasn't thinking ever about any consequences. So we had, we, we got arrested with, um, uh, about $50,000 worth of, worth of different narcotics and, um, everything from, you know, Xanax and Adderall to meth and heroin, um, and a bunch of other, you know, a bunch of other pain pills and, and stuff that we, you know, had kind of collected. And I was, I was charged with, uh, 12 felonies right then and there. <laughs> I remember sitting in the back of the cop car on my way to Ketchikan County Correctional and just thinking, fuck, my life is over. Like my life as I know it is completely done. When I first looked out that peephole and I saw those five cops standing there, there was this very, very brief moment of like, oh, thank God. <laughs> very brief, followed immediately by sheer terror and just, you know, like, oh, shit, we got to try to do what we can to make sure that we don't go to jail. Um, but yeah, man, and then I spent, you know, about 28 days in Ketchikan County Correctional and and it was, there was this judge, dude, and I've actually just recently uh, thought about writing this judge a letter um, because I think it would be really cool just to just to tell him thank you for what he did. Um, they passed this law at the time called the Suspended Entry of Judgment in Alaska. And if you're a first-time offender um, and you successfully complete your terms of probation, they will drop any felonies from your record. Um, and thanks to some not okay police work and some stuff that they probably didn't do very right, they dropped down from 12 felonies to one. I pled guilty to one felony and, um, and I got sentenced to two years probation. Um, my mom and actually, uh, our friend Clayton, mm -hmm. Clayton was down there working on a different job with me. He came to visit me a couple of times, actually a lot of times. And I scared the shit out of him, dude. Like he, I remember the look on his face when he first saw me. Um, I was, you know, detoxing incredibly hard from, from meth and, and Xanax and heroin and just all of this stuff. And, uh, I could not distinguish, you know, reality from, from, you know, so I couldn't, I didn't even know if I was sleeping or awake half the time. Really? Oh my God, it was terrible, dude. It was the worst experience of my entire life. And not, not to mention, not only that, but you're also locked up, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, oh, it was terrible. It was the absolute worst thing I've, I've ever been through. And um, he came to visit me and I remember just seeing this look of like sheer horror and sadness on his face. And that's a look I'll never forget. Um, and shortly after my mom arrived um, and my sister came down too. And I, I told him not to come. I didn't want him to see me like that. And my mom said, you don't really have a choice. I'm coming. Um, 
I love my parents. I'm super grateful that they came down uh, or that my mom did. My dad was a little too angry with me at the time uh, to even talk to me on the phone. Um, but this judge, I sat down with my mom in front of this judge and my attorney. And um, he looked at me and he said, is that your mom? And I said, yes. And he goes, do not let your mother down. And he said, I'm going to release you to her. You are in third party custody to your mom on your way down to a rehab facility in Flagstaff, Arizona. He's like, you will stay within her eyesight, within her earshot at all times. You will never leave her side until you get to the gates of that rehab. Do you understand me? I said, yes, sir. And he said, if you mess this up, I'm going to throw the book at you. You're looking at eight to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, yes, sir. And he let me walk out with, with my mom. I mean, I, I had to go back to jail and get released and stuff. But um, yeah, he let me walk out with my mom and, and go to rehab. Um, it was, I, I just want to, I want to write that judge and just tell him thank you. Cause I mean, when I look at my life now compared to what it was then, it's like completely different. And I think it would just be cool to, to say thanks. Before we get into your rehab experience, I wanted to ask you, go back a little bit and ask you about why you thought to yourself after you looked through that peephole and saw the police on the other end, why did you think, thank God? Because it was going to be over. That's the only thing. Like, I was, it was that night I was sitting on the couch smoking a bowl of meth and it was not working. And the cops showed up and it was like, thank God, it's finally over. This, this terrible, depressed, anxious, just awful existence that I had been living is over. From the outside, I understand that a lot of it looked like, hey, yeah, he's got a cool job. He's got a couple of cars. He lives in his own place. He's got, you know, friends. But on the inside, I was dead. I was completely dead. Um, and I felt completely alone. And it was like, thank God, something is going to change. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be something. And you said this was 15 minutes after you got off the phone with me. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was very, very shortly after. It had to be anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes like after we were texting. And, and uh, it was just, just like that, dude. Just like that. Do you remember how that conversation went? I'm, I'm not recollecting it very well yeah, right now. So it was, a, it, was a quick, it was a quick text. We had a buddy at the time who was really struggling with some substance abuse. And, um, and I remember talking about him and his problems a lot. Um, because it took the, it took any sort of like focus or, um, it, it didn't shed any light on me and my problems. So we would talk about, you know, our, our other buddy and his problems. Okay. Um, and I remember that what he was going through was like, it was, it was really difficult on him and his friends and us. And, and, and it was, it was, uh, I, I told you that I feel like him, like I'm him to you. And you're like, what are you, what are you talking about, dude? Um, it was, it was pretty quick. I mean, I just was not okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was real quick. Well, you know that a lot of us had no idea, you know, the depth yeah. of all this. Oh yeah. It wasn't until, I don't know, afterwards, you know, when, uh, Carrie and I were writing you when you were in jail that mm -hmm. we started to get a more full picture of what was going on. 
Yeah, I mean, that was all that was all obviously like by design as a drug addict, you know, you don't want people to know because there is this level of like shame and insecurity and fear that, you know, people are going to judge you or that something's going to change or, you know, there's you just try to hide it in any way that you can in absolutely any way that you can. Um, and I remember I still have those letters from you and Carrie. Um, they're in a shoebox in my closet. And uh, when we were moving into the house, I actually read them again recently. And, and I remember, you know, reading those for the first time and, and crying reading them um, and just being like, oh, my God, like I have people that do truly love me and do truly care about me. And they're not just, you know, not just my family. Obviously, they love me and care about me. But, you know, there's there's people out there like I got to I got to make changes for this for myself. I got to I got to get I got to get better. Do you think that that helped you at all to um, maybe look at your life and realize that it's bigger than you? You know, you have people um, like me, like Carrie, like Clayton, like your mom, your dad, your sister, you know, all these friends um, and family that care about you so much. Did that help make that decision easier or do you think that it was, you know because you went to jail and you had to clean out. No, it was, um, so <laughs> it's funny that you should bring that up because when I was in jail, I remember talking to my mom and being like, I just need to go to a detox and then get back to work and everything's going to be fine. And then I talked to my sister and I love my sister, you know, so much. And she has two absolutely beautiful children who I'm, I'm a proud uncle of and uh, godfather to one. And I'm just, I, I love them so much. And I told her that I didn't want to go to rehab, that I was just going to go do like a 30-day spin dry sort of a deal and then get back out to it. And she told me, these were her words, she said, if you don't get your act together, you will not be a part of your niece and nephew's life anymore. And that was like, <clears throat> that was like a stab to the heart for me. Um, and at that point was when I kind of, resolve to, all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, if the people in my life mean so much to me, they do. Um, and they always have, I, I, I consider myself like a very, a people person. I love people. Um, and an, and an alcoholic and a drug addict, they act out of selfishness and self-centeredness through and through, you know, every situation, every, every, um, Everything they do is based on selfishness and self-centeredness. So to finally realize like, oh my God, there's other people involved in this. Like I'm not just hurting myself anymore. There's other people involved. That was, oh my God, that was eye-opening. What was your attitude like when you first went to treatment? I was ecstatic. <laughs> really? I remember, yeah, I met my, uh, so during this treatment, um, you get, you know, one-on-one -on -one therapy sessions and we do group therapy and you spend a bunch of time in the outdoors and, you know, you're, you're out of town, like in the woods for three days and then you're back in town going to AA meetings and doing all this cool stuff for another four days out of the week and community service. And I remember showing up to the porch of the rehab house and my, um, my, my therapist was standing on the porch and I met her right then and there. And she was like, why are you smiling so much? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, I'm just really happy to be out of jail. <laughs> um, and she was like, well, that smile's going to go away pretty quick. And it, I mean, <laughs> it definitely did. Um, 
because therapy was uh it was intense man absolutely like really intense you know something that that i've thought of and i hope you don't take this the wrong way i mean we've talked about it in in person um but the rehab you went to is not the type of rehab that everybody would go to or anybody would go to right like this it's it's um for lack of a better way of putting it, it's kind of a privilege rehab. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was, I mean, it was, it was expensive. My parents, you know, they footed the whole bill for it and I will forever uh, be grateful for that. And, and, um, yeah, it was, it's not your standard like salvation army rehab, Mm -hmm. you know, um, they provided us with all of the, all of the backpacking gear and all of the stuff that we would need. And, and I mean, you have a beautiful home that you're living in. It was actually three different houses that they had and they have, you know, full night staff and all this kind of stuff. It was like, yeah, it was a very privileged rehab. Um, and I think, I think in my, you know, in, in the first, you know, six months of rehab, I started to have this realization that like, not everybody gets this opportunity. Mm-hmm. not everybody gets the chance to be completely like not have a job, um, not have any other financial or, you know, personal responsibility for anything except for the only focus that I had at that time was getting sober. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of people in the world that get to do it like that. I mean, my wife didn't get to do it like that. You know, she had to, she had to just go to AA meetings and continue to go to work and, and, you know, do all the things that like a normal person has to do. Um, and yeah, I feel very, very, very fortunate that, uh, that I got to, to do what I got to. Taking that into consideration, I know that you work with a lot of people who are going through alcoholism and addiction. How do you, or do you kind of employ that? you know, kind of knowing where, where you came from and then your path to sobriety, but then helping them find their path to sobriety, even though it may not look like yours. Yeah, man. I, so I'm a, uh, a very grateful sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, you actually gave me my first AA big book. Um, you gave me a really cool old second edition of the big book and I still have it. It's in my living room on the shelf. Uh, we proudly display that book because it's super cool and it's old and not too many people have that edition. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, when you gave it to me, this is really kind of funny when you gave it to me, I'm like, Oh, this is really cool. You know? And I was actually like stoked and I think I opened it and I was like, Oh, that's not me. And then just immediately closed it and never took another look at it again. Um, but the very first 164 pages of that book if you are an alcoholic or a drug addict, there's no way you cannot relate to those pages. Um, so my work and any work that I do uh, with other with other alcoholics, with other drug addicts is all centered around the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps therein. I have dealt with a lot of people. I, when I first started, you know, working with guys who were in sobriety, um, they they were guys that were in the same rehab that I was in, you know. Um, so we could relate a lot on things like that. But when you look at an alcoholic or at a drug addict's life in, in general, there's so many things that are relatable. I mean, that feeling of alone, that feeling of, 
you know, it's not working anymore. It started out as fun and then it became this obsession. Like that, that first 164 pages of that book just outlines everything that an alcoholic has ever had to deal with or ever will deal with. It is just, it's nuts. So anytime that I deal with, with them now, it's, you sit down with them and you tell them your story. And, and typically if you tell them your story, they're going to relate somewhere along the lines. I remember buying that book for you. I went to, I think it was Tidal Wave in Anchorage. Okay. And they had two copies of it. And I bought one for myself. And just on a whim, I was like, yeah, I'll get one for Ryan. And I recognized that book because, and I've talked about this before in the podcast, but my dad was an alcoholic. And I had to go to those meetings when I was younger. So I would just kind of hang out, you know, have some like the donuts and stuff and then like <laughs> sit outside of the churches. And it was kind of a regular thing for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know why I picked up that book. I think that I, I also read a lot of stuff and maybe I was also scared that I was turning into an alcoholic. I don't know. I think there was probably a mess of emotions or thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, like I said, dude, that book is like, that's a really, Jayma and I both, we just, we just absolutely love that book. I mean, it sits on like a, basically like a, like its own shelf in our, in our, uh, in our living room, in our front living room by our fireplace. And, mm -hmm. and we just love it. And every time I look at it, it reminds me that there, you know, there are friends, there are people in this life who care, you know, and there's, there's so many reasons to continue living the life that I'm living now. Um, if not just for me, but for, for other people as well. And, and to be honest, dude, I do it for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I am sober because I don't ever want to be that version of myself ever again, ever again. I don't want to ever have to end up in jail. I don't want to ever have to, um, you know, go through that terrible detox that I went through. I, I just don't ever want to do that again. Mm -hmm. Um, and these little reminders, like I got a, I got a cross tattooed on my ring finger on my right hand. Um, and like I said before, I'm not a super religious person, but what, what reminds me to pray is the cross. You know, I see crosses, they're everywhere, you know? Um, so I got a cross tattooed on my hand so that every time I notice it, um, I'll say a quick prayer, mm -hmm. um, just to, just to either, either a thank you or, you know, please help me be sober today. Um, thanks for keeping me sober yesterday. Um, pray for people in my life, whatever it is, but. Yeah, I mean, just these little reminders that keep you, you know, keep you sober. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a pretty big chunk of time where we weren't communicating and it was because we were unable to communicate after you were arrested and then eventually in rehab. What happened during that time when you were in rehab? Wow, dude, that's... Um... Yeah, I, uh, I got my first sponsor, uh, my first AA sponsor. And for those of you that don't know, it's just somebody that works through the steps with you. Um, and I, and I kind of realized at that point in time that I truly was not just had this idea that, oh, I have a drinking problem or, oh, I have a drug problem, but I truly was an alcoholic mm -hmm. and I truly was a drug addict. And there's this, there's this really interesting situation that happened uh, at one point. Uh, we were staying in one of the three, I say we, me and my roommates at rehab, we were staying in one of the three rehab houses 
Um, and this one just so happened to be a townhouse. It was connected to this one on, on the left of us that was uh, a bunch of college kids were living in it. Um, so they were always drinking beers and smoking weed and stuff. You could always smell it. And it was like, oh, God, I mean, right next door to a rehab house. How convenient. Mm -hmm. um, and one night, these guys, knowing full well that we were in a rehab house, invited us over to smoke some weed. Um, and it was after hours, you know, it was lights out for the rehab house. And a couple of my buddies were like, hey, man, we're going to go over there and smoke some weed. Do you want to go? And the craziest thing happened, dude. I said no. <laughs> and that was the first time since the time I started smoking weed or doing any drugs or drinking at all that somebody had offered me something and I said no. There's the heroin too. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess the heroin too. So yeah, I mean like somebody there was an intervention again at that point. But this time being in a sober state of mind, I had been sober for a few months at this point. Um I could actually think about what had just happened. And like, I remember I went outside and I sat under the stars and I looked up and the Flagstaff is known as like a, a dark sky city. So they don't have too many like upward pointing lights or street lights and stuff like that. So you can see the stars just beautifully in Flagstaff. Um, and I remember looking up and seeing the stars and thinking about the fact that I had just said no and realizing that that point right there was where some sort of obsession had just been removed mm -hmm. that I no longer needed to do the things that I was doing. I had started working through the steps in AA. We were doing all sorts of amazing like hiking and camping experiences and just, you know, you're with, I was with like 12 dudes who were all going through the exact same thing as me. Mm -hmm. You know, they might not have all just come from jail or, or, you know, their all their drugs of choice were different. Um, but we all had the same problem were using a substance and could not stop using a substance. So we went to this rehab and it was I mean, the camaraderie that was there was absolutely amazing. I mean, along with, you know, some, you put a bunch of 20 something year old dudes in a house, there's definitely going to be a, a bunch of testosterone and a bunch of, you know, some close calls where people are at each other's throats. I mean, you're with each other 24 seven. And, um, but that was this, this weird, strange moment of my life that was like, Oh my God. I don't need to do this anymore. Like I would, had, was completely convinced, remember, before, I, before everything happened that I was going to be a drug addict and an alcoholic for the rest of my life. And that realization that I didn't need to do that was incredible. That was, that's one of the biggest experiences from that whole thing. I didn't think about this during your wedding, but was that one of the reasons you and Jema decided to get married in Flagstaff? Yes, Flagstaff holds a very, a very huge place in our hearts. Uh, we both got sober there. Jay was born and raised in Flagstaff. So, I mean, her whole family's there, but, but that holds a very, like, that's where we met. That's where I got sober. That's where she got sober. That's like, there's this, we have some sort of a magnetism to, to Flagstaff and we love it and we, and we miss it very much, but our, our lives are on a, on a different path than they were in Flagstaff now. So we're down here in Phoenix. What do you think is keeping you from drinking or taking a pill now? Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> For, I mean, just as your short answer, AA, dude. Um, and I tell people all the time, that, like guys that are struggling with staying sober or something, I, I, one of the things that I try to tell them is you need to create a life that's worth living. 
You need to create something better than the life you had before, or you're just going to go back to that same life. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in a, in a and I, I don't like to, you know, toot my own horn or anything, but I'm sitting here in a house that Jema and I bought together last April um, in a walk-in closet that I built with my dad. I mean, we had to knock out another closet to build it, so it's not like we live in a massive house. But, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I have a life worth living. And I do AA to keep this life worth living. Because if I don't do the, the things that I'm supposed to do, like take, a, take in a, an inventory at night about how my day went, about if I owe anybody an amends, um, if I don't live my life by the 12 principles of honesty, integrity, faith, hope, kindness, brotherly love, all those things, if I don't live my life that way, then I start to like slide backward. Mm -hmm. You start to regress into these, into these different places, this different way of thinking that is very reminiscent of the way I was before. Um, so, I mean, just for instance, like this week was a really hard week for me. Um, I, I was started comparing myself to other people and, and just being like, I had no humilities being right sized. You know, I, I, you're either as an alcoholic, you either feel, you know, greater than or less than most of the people in your life. And I was just at this weird point where I was just feeling so less than, um, it was like pride in reverse. You know, I just had this, this terrible com comparison to you know, the people I work with and my friends and, and like, I mean, even, even so much as to say, like you and I had a conversation about one of our friends recently, Cody. And, and like, I was like, man, everything he's saying is, is so good. Like, I just sound like an idiot right now. You know, like I get to these, I get to these weird places. Um, so I go to a meeting, you know, I call my sponsor. I talk to other alcoholics. I get to these, I, I have, a spiritual toolkit of all these things that I can use that get me out of that funk. Were you saying that things that I was saying were good? <laughs> oh, you, would you, did you want me to repeat that? No, no, no. <laughs> no Cause I yeah. was trying to, I was trying to follow that. And, yeah. and what's, what's interesting is I've been thinking about how good you sound now. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I need to step my game up. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I get into these weird places where I like just compare myself to people. And you and I have been, you know, talking a lot more recently. And mm -hmm. it's like, man, every time I talk to him, I'm like, God, he's so like, he talks so well. How do I do that? You know? And, and it's just, it's just, <laughs> it's just me being, you know, me being my, my sick alcoholic self. And, and, and it's when, when I start to, to do things like that, and I start to notice these comparisons, it's just that I need to, I need to do more work on me, man. I think that everybody should work on themselves all the time. You know, we strive to be the best versions of ourselves every day. Mm. And if you're not doing that, like you should take a look at it, you know? So how would you describe your life now and your relationship with your friends, your family, you know, everything? Man, I, I don't, I don't like to use the word perfect, um, because I, I'm a firm believer that, that there is, there's no such thing as a, like perfection. Um, but I'm just going to use it. Like, I feel like my life's perfect, man. And I'm not trying to say that in a way like I'm better than, I'm better than you or I'm better than anybody listening or anything like that, but it's perfect for me. Mm -hmm. You know, my life is perfect for me my relationships with my parents. So when I, when I got sober, dude, my dad, uh, 
I had a family therapy session and I sat down with my dad and he said, I haven't been proud of you in a long time. And my mom said some stuff and my sister said some stuff, but my dad saying that, like that just ripped me apart, dude. It ripped me apart. Um, and then I got the chance to make amends to him. Um, and he, you know, I had made amends to my mom and it went really well. And she's like, you know, just, just keep doing what you're doing. We're so proud of you. And I made amends to my dad and he's like, he goes, he goes, yeah, I appreciate everything that you said. You know, that was really nice. Uh, but you got a lot of work to do. I was like, whoa, you know, whoa, what? I thought that was me setting expectations of, well, it's going to go exactly like it went with my mom. Um, but he said, for the 10 years that you were out there doing whatever the hell you were doing, I was here. I was here watching you do that to yourself. And you weren't a part of that. He's like, but we have time to make up. I want you to be my son again. I want you to be my friend again. Um, and that hit, that hit me really hard. And so my relationship with my parents is, is, oh my God, it's incredible. Like I talk to them on the phone all the time. Even if it's just for like five minutes, just to call my dad and tell him I love him. Mm -hmm. Or call my mom and ask how our day went. Um, and I talk to my sister. I mean, not as much as I would like to. And we both are just so bad about calling each other. Um, but our relationship is, is real and it's genuine. And we truly care about each other and the people in my life, you know, I, I, you and I have talked about this before. It's like, you know, as you get older, your, your circle of friends starts to get a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller and you get to kind of pick and choose the people that seem to be worth putting the time in. And I don't mean it in, in like a bad way, but like, these are the people that I want to associate with, you know, these are the people mm -hmm. that I want to, that I want to be a part of my life. And so you, you make those you make those moves, you make those, you know, those phone calls and, you know, those drop those text messages every once in a while, just to, just to say what's up. And, you know, I, I truly believe that I have some of the absolute best friends in the world. Um, you and Carrie have just been so loving and so caring and so committed to like our friendship. And, and it's been amazing. And then there's my wife. Um, God, I love that woman so much. <laughs> I do. She's, um, she pushes me to be the best version of myself. She's compassionate when I'm not. She loves me in every single way uh, and every single version of myself. Uh, the other day I came home for lunch to make a sandwich and it was just during my, it was, it was this week, it was during my, my shitty rough week. And I couldn't get the mayonnaise out of the squeeze mayonnaise tube. <laughs> and I was so pissed, dude. And I was just slamming the mayonnaise down on the counter and she goes, what's wrong? And I said, oh, nothing. I just can't get the mayonnaise out. And I'm just fuming <laughs> from the ears, you know, and I'm just trying to like pass it off as like, it's no big deal. Yeah. And she goes, she goes, okay, um, I can feel you right now. You know, I could tell that something's going on. And I was like, oh, just, you know, and I, and I spilled into it and, and she listens, dude. She listens so intently uh, and she offers advice when I need advice and she, and she pushes me to go to more meetings and just to be a better version of me. And there's nobody else I would rather spend every, every day with than, than that woman. And I know you can relate. I mean, you mm -hmm. have that relationship with somebody too. And, you know, if you find that person, it's like you do everything you possibly can uh, to hold on to that person and, mm -hmm. and make sure that your lives together are, are truly incredible. And dude, I love my life. 
man, I absolutely love my life and I, and I owe it all to, um, my family and my friends. I owe it to God, uh, my God, and I owe it to, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I would not be where I am today sitting on the floor in my closet if, uh, <laughs> if it wasn't for all of those things. Mm -hmm. Well, Ryan, dude, I, you know, that does it for my questions. I love you. I, I'm so proud of you. I hope that my, my quietness in this interview didn't, didn't translate to not listening. You know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in my job as the host is to be a gracious host. And in my mind, being a gracious host is to allow the, the guest or the interviewee or, you know, my friend to have as much time as they need to, to, you know, talk to me. So do you have anything else you'd like to add? Dude, I, first of all, just thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on, dude. I, I'm, I love food conversations. I've, I've listened to, you know, quite a few of them, dude. And, um, you, you do what you say you want to do really, really well. Um, you give people an opportunity to, to really tell their story, man. And you do it in such a natural, um, amazing way. Um, it doesn't come across as like this weird journalist interview. It comes across as like you and somebody having a conversation where the other person really gets to tell their story. And, and you just, you do an incredible job, man. And I love you with all my heart, dude. Um, just thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. You can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. <laughs>